0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network Podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben. Today my guests are Anne Blair and Caspar von Griertz. Anne and Caspar are the editors of this new book, Physical Theology, Religion and Science in Europe 1650 to 1750, just published at the end of last year, 2020, by the John Hopkins University Press. Anne and Casper Thank you for your time today, and it's great to have you on the show.
2: Thanks for having us. (laughs)
1: Before we begin talking uh, about the book itself, Physical Theology, Religion and Science in Europe, 1650 to 1750, Anne and Casper, could you tell us something about your, your background at Harvard, Anne, at Basil, Casper, and some of your previous publications that have led you up to this project that you've collaborated on?
2: So I've been a historian of early modern European history, Uh, with an emphasis on intellectual history, history of science. And I think I got into science and religion by studying Jean Baudin, who wrote a natural philosophy in the late 16th century, which was uh, trying to overturn the established uh, parameters of natural philosophy based on Aristotle and instead be properly pious and bring people to a better um, attitude toward God and lose the Bible as a source of answers about the natural philosophical world. So um, that got me teaching in science and religion. Uh, and I taught for a number of years, a very long skinny course, as I thought of it, from Augustine to creationism on the interactions between science and religion. And so this book is, is part of that aspect of, of what I've been doing for about 20 years as, uh, as an academic. Um, but I've got other interests too, which we can talk about later in book history, for example, and, um, and the history of, uh, education and working methods of intellectuals and writers. Great. And (laughs) Casper?
0: I'm originally a, a Reformation historian, one of uh, the few people still uh, still active in the field who've actually studied REN-REF, uh, 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 the REN-REF uh, program at, at, uh, at Stanford at the time. And I've gradually sort of moved uh, up into the 17th and 18th centuries, and I got interested in physico-theology because of the very narrow uh, connection. Uh, between uh, religion and, and science. I first addressed uh, uh, the, the issue of uh, science in a, in a volume that got translated from the German into, into French and English on religion and culture in early modern uh, Europe. And this is sort of follows up on the thoughts, uh, this volume now, on the thoughts uh, I developed uh, at the time. I did some uh, editing, um if I may uh, just briefly conti- uh, go into that, some editing in, in in the field, but these things have mostly been uh, been uh, uh, published in German. That was two thousand and ten on religion and and science in the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries, a collective volume, and another one uh, published in two thousand and thirteen, which is actually mixed uh, German and and English on connecting science and uh, and knowledge, uh, but uh, uh, nothing uh, yet uh, in in terms of in in uh, terms of the comprehensiveness of what Anne and uh, I have done together.
1: Now that's fascinating, Casper, That you mention um, this book is, or you describe this book as a, as a comprehensive project, and it certainly is, isn't mm-hmm. it? Um, it's really the first attempt, the first big project to put together uh, a comprehensive history of physical theology in this period, which is one of the reasons why it's such an exciting volume to read and indeed to talk about today. Now, um, you describe in the preface and acknowledgements to this volume that it has emerged out of a scholarly conference in Wolfenbüttel back in, I think, 2017, if I remember correctly.
0: Exactly. Uh, exactly. Wolfenbüttel is the big the, the, the library in Wolfenbüttel, the, the big center of early modern uh, research in Germany these uh, these days, there's no other German library that actually parallels uh, its the, uh, its uh, quality and, and the quality also of its uh, of its holdings. And they do run conferences. Uh, I actually ran a conference there uh, almost forty years ago in in uh, in 1982 when they were still sort of getting off uh, the ground as a, as an organization. And uh, it's always uh, it's a, a pleasant uh, atmosphere. It's well organized. So that's why. We were able to do it there, also because of uh, they funded uh, a part of the conference, and the rest was done by the Fritz uh, Tissen uh, Stiftung, big uh, German foundation, and actually uh, helped us to get this get this off the ground.
2: I think it was really a wonderful opportunity to bring people together across different national contexts, and that's reflected in the volume as well, where basically half of the authors are you know, native speakers of English and writing often from the English context or uh, from American academic context. But the other half are from German and French and Italian and Swiss uh, institutions and um, historiographies. And it was a wonderful opportunity for us all to meet. Um, sometimes these were, you know, people we'd whose works we'd read but never had been able to meet them in person. Uh, and to talk, and of course, there's a a lot of spillover between the formal conference and the informal opportunities to mingle, which sadly, uh, (laughs) we are not enjoying at this time. Um, So it it was a a lovely occasion and a great location, and Wolfenbüttel actually digitizes a fair number of their collections. So the Herzog August Bibliothek, which means Duke August Library, uh, founded by this um, 17th century Duke of Brunswick, is a fantastic resource with a specialism in 17th century holdings.
1: Fantastic. And their website, of course, offers all kinds of fellowship opportunities and so on that people are interested. They can find out some more. Now, it's fascinating to see how a book that comes out of a symposium nevertheless manages to, to hold on to some of the sparkle and fizz that so often, uh, that, that, that as academics, we enjoy at these events. And I thought one of the really striking features of the book is the way that the, the chapters speak to each other. There's a real sense in this volume that we're being invited into a conversation. And it's a very lively conversation, isn't it? N- not everyone agrees about everything. There are different perspectives about how to read individual um, authors or, 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 or publications, and it's a lot of fun. It really is. So as we think about this volume, physical theology, religion and science in Europe, 1650 to 1750, as a groundbreaking volume in its field, could you tell us about why that is so? What has been the long discussion of religion and science in early modern Europe? And how how does it settle down at the present day?
2: So I think early modern science has and science and religion has taken a number of roots. The, one of the roots has been, of course, the Catholic context and the idea of the Galileo affair, that there was a a conflict. It was, I think, due to many contingent factors, but nevertheless, once the conflict is there, it creates a narrative of a necessary or inevitable conflict between science and religion. And the other side is much more um, a conciliatory one, showing how science and religion have favored one another. And this story can start being told in the Middle Ages, when the Catholic Church was, of course, one of the sites for funding uh, you know, research and uh, writing about the natural world. And, um, in the after the Reformation, it's often also in Protestant environments, there's a fair amount of synergy between science and religion. And in particular, the project called natural theology, the idea that by studying nature on its own terms, in rational terms, you actually come to understand God, divine creation, the laws of nature, which are all beautifully arranged and providential in yielding a world, which is generally assessed rather positively in this mode of thinking. So I think natural theology, of course, also has roots even prior to Christianity. You can see ancient thinkers talking about a system of nature that self-perpetuates and self-regulates. Cicero, for example, has some of these themes. But of course, the Christian uh, overlay emphasizes the divine planning and sustenance of this admirable uh, natural world. So I think that's the probably the dominant mode in which our book inserts itself. But we we like to emphasize what's a subset of natural theology, which hasn't gotten much attention for its peculiarities, which is what the people at the time, and we use in our title and throughout the book, the term physico-theology hyphenated.
0: Well, uh, I think it has to uh, the fact that this has uh, been neglected by research uh, to date, has a lot to do with the fact that uh, Anglo-American research has, uh, has all, which is sort of uh, much stronger and much more present internationally than German-speaking uh, research in this uh, in this field it has very often uh, just uh, treated physical theology and natural theology uh, as uh, synonyms. And uh, uh, that meant uh, that uh, you had uh, historians speaking about physical theology at ancient times, etc., etc. And what we were really trying to do uh, with this conference uh, was to to establish... uh, for the first time really, in in an English um, uh, volume, that there are very distinct features uh, to this uh, phenomenon, which sort of uh, make it, uh, even though it it stays part of natural theology, make it uh, a very distinct phenomenon. I think one of the, uh, if I may go into, uh, into that and uh, and will, I'm, I'm sure we'll add uh, other uh, uh, points. One of the uh, interesting things is, for example, that physical theologians, all of physical theologians, uh, actually argue mechanistically and that's an indication, uh, that, uh, th- this uh, tradition or movement only really started in the mid 17th century because uh, before in, in all the natural theology, nobody was arguing mechanistically. It was a takeover from Descartes. Uh, of course, you know, Descartes is hotly disputed at the, uh, at the time and also, uh, uh, comes, uh, is, is seen with negative connotations in many quarters. uh, But that's probably one of the the basic ideas of of his work, which was adopted uh, all over uh, the place. We haven't made that much of it in our introduction uh, because because other people uh, outside physical theology argued in the same uh, way. But in terms of sort of of, uh, saying of claiming that this started in the mid-17th century. It's important to point uh, to this, uh, to mechanism. So that, 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 that's a fascinating observation,
1: Casper. I suppose it's a very important point to hammer home to the reader as well, isn't it? That physical theology is not a synonym of natural theology, but it's, it's a kind of a genre of discussion that sits within natural theology at a particular moment in the history of that long Um, Christian and indeed non-Christian discussion. Could you you tell us something more about the relationship between natural theology and, and physical theology?
2: One of the points of the book is to emphasize that natural theology and physical theology have typically been reduced to the argument from design, the idea that the world is well arranged, as we can see, and therefore there must be a creator and a providential creator. And that's definitely a very important theme. But There are also many other themes running. And in particular, physical theology doesn't just admire the laws, but it can also admire the wondrous, the surprises. And so it's an awe as well as an admiration of the mechanisms of nature. And another, uh, element of physical theology is reconciling the Bible, often quite taken quite, um, you know, literally seriously in its details with the science. And so a lot of attention to the flood, for example, and how do we match uh, biblical descriptions with observations from this new science, which Caspar was mentioning, which is the science of Newton and Hooke and Boyle and all these people, Swammerdam and Hook, and all these people who are using microscopes and telescopes and recording their observations and being very empirical about it. And yet the mindset in which they do this is principally to um, to advance a religious project or to reconcile science with religion, constantly um, through connections with the biblical text, and or basically talking about divine omnipotence, divine providence, um, divine wisdom, and benevolence. So, it's it's a subset. There are also even some features of physical theology which we didn't uh, we weren't able to find experts to write on basically. Uh, basically a physical theology of resurrection and so forth, uh, which are rather, uh, really taking some serious theological elements and trying to fit them into the new science molds to really reconcile every element. One, one thing that I find, uh, so, uh, remarkable, this term physical theology is used at the time, but not just that. They talk about Toronto theology, the theology of lightning and Rana theology, the theology of frogs and our, um, our, our cover shows this uh, kind of emphasis on specific species and the frog in particular. Um, and you can do this indefinitely. You can take any piece of nature and the more you delve into it and the more empirically you look at it with microscopes, etc., the more you will find demonstration of the greatness of God. Um, In many ways, because of the wonder it causes, because of the laws that it shows. So both the regularities and the irregularities and the correspondence with the Bible are all these multi-pronged ways of uh, performing this reconciliation that they're really interested in.
1: I, I was really struck in the book by the way that a number of contributors called attention to the possible limitations of physical theology as a way of doing theology because it speaks to certain parts of the divine being, certain attributes, power. You mentioned omnipotence and so forth, um, um, but not to others. And and so, you know, while, um, as your contributors demonstrate, there might be some excellent discussions of parthenogenesis or, or you know, virgin birth theories, uh, it, it's it's a theology with that experiences some more difficulties when it comes to speak about suffering
0: or natural disasters, isn't it? Yes, but that's uh, because one of the the, the other uh, elements in uh, physical theology that distinguishes it from from preceding uh, forms of natural theology is a completely new image of God. Uh, it's not. It's not the, the, the God of Thomas Beards, uh, the Theatre of God's Judgments, uh, published in the late 16th century, and actually, typically having its uh, last uh, fourth or so edition in 1648, just before uh, before the period of physical uh, physical theology actually started. It's not that kind of image of uh, God, the irascible uh, God. God, the unpredictable uh, 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 God mm-hmm. of the, the late 16th and uh, early 17th century—they uh, uh, all uh, make it a point uh, to to highlight uh, his goodness, and his goodness means uh, also, in a in a sense, his predictability. And mm-hmm. actually, uh, the study. Uh, uh, the study of nature, uh, the idea behind it is that the study of nature will help uh, to find out more about his uh, intentions. So um,
1: empirical scientists want a predictable God. It's a fascinating combination, isn't it, Uh, that Mm -hmm. that drives so much of this discussion? Well, you mentioned earlier on that around about half of the contributors to this volume are from non-Anglophone intellectual traditions. And obviously that... that, um, I suppose that maps onto the the geographical breadth of interest in physical theology in the later 17th, 18th, and even, you suggest, into the 19th century um, as well, or your contributor suggests into the 19th century as well. Where does physical theology first emerge as a specific discussion, and where does it last longest?
2: Well, that's a tricky question, as you know. Even the authors within the book don't completely agree, but um, I, I want to you know, see because- if the
1: editors do. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but clearly, the English world—John uh, Ray and William Durham—you know—have classically been identified as some of the first who, who self-identify as physical theologians. But the Dutch world is very important. The German, in addition, and then by the 18th century, we have some major Swiss figures like Jan Jakob Schröpfer. So it is um, one thing to say is it's traditionally been a very Protestant um, milieu, but I'm really pleased that in the book, we also um, look at a couple Catholic contexts and the complexity of um, the confessional environment is such as Caspar as was saying, this view of a, of a God who's admirable because he's predictable is actually cross confessional. And in particular, we we talk about, uh, there's a nice article on, on uh, Blaise Pascal, who himself was quite hostile to the Natural Theological Project, and yet who's interpreted by the Jansenists, who basically publish from his unpublished material, his Palsé, they're much more favorable to the Natural Theological Project. So in a way, they distort his, his uh, views by channeling them uh, in a certain way and omitting, um, you know, fragments that don't fit. Uh, A Natural Theological Perspective. And the other uh, big Catholic figure in the book is the Abbe Antoine Pluche, who is also Jansenist-leaning, although at a time when you couldn't be Jansenist explicitly, uh, who who spends a lot of time really, in a way, diffusing and popularizing the findings of the new science uh, to a a broad French-speaking audience with lots of lovely pictures and who does want to reserve the limits of reason and, and remind you also that God is mysterious, even while, of course, he spends most of the time showing you how God is great in all these ways that we can observe. So it's a, a, a very rich um, confessional story.
0: One other uh, a Catholic we, we should mention, even though he was, wasn't a physical theologian, was Antonio Valisneri, a famous, at the time, famous professor of medicine at Padua. Uh, uh, but who was in exchange with uh, with important physical uh, theologians? Uh, Johann Jakob Scheurer in Zurich was one of his correspondents. Uh, Louis Bourget in French-speaking uh, Switzerland, Leibniz uh, was one of his correspondents, and of course a whole uh, array uh, of Italians. And yet in the end, he decided not to go, uh, even though he was in touch with all these people who favored a physico-theological approach, he, he, he decided against, against it. And it's actually indicative of the Italian situation in France. You have a number. I, I have counted in the meantime four, uh, Physico-theological authors, three in, in France, three of them are uh, Only Pierre Tain is, uh, is probably just a, a regular, uh, in, in quotation marks, in, uh, a regular Catholic. And in Italy, we only have very, very few, even though the, uh, there is a, a strong Reception of Newtonianism, especially of the optics of Newton, not so much uh, not so much his uh, astronomy, uh, at least not officially, because discussing his astronomy could get you into uh, difficulties uh, with uh, with censure. But his optics are uh, discussed intensively in the early eighteenth century. And yet, uh, there's only w- w- one uh, Italian Newtonian who can perhaps be regarded to be a, a physical theologian: that's Celestino Galliani, and uh, who was uh, the, the abbot of the order of the. Uh, uh, Celestines, uh, that's why, or Celestines, that's why his first. That uh, explains his first name. Uh, I'm I'm not sure about that at all. And the others are two a father and son, uh, Monti, um, Giovanni Monti and Gaetano Monti at the Acad- Academy of uh, Bologna, and and that's it. So even less Uh, than in France, that really makes it a predominantly Protestant phenomenon. Fascinating. Maybe you could
1: tell us something about the German context as well. I was very struck, we've been talking about Jansenists, I was very struck by the contrast between the Jansenist Augustinian tradition that comes into Jansenism with the Augustinian tradition Mm -hmm. that comes into Lutheranism. And of course, as your contributors show, they have very different views um of of the possibilities of physical theology, don't they?
0: Um, well absolutely. Uh I, I think well, this has been conceived German physical theology, theology very broadly in in, in, in a historiographical tradition in in, in Germany, but well, I think one has to exclude the Orthodox Lutherans, uh, for example. They really can't. Uh, they have made no contribution to physical theology at all because their their uh, their insistence on augustinian on the augustinian limitations uh on of, of human uh, cognition It's just too uh, is to uh, prevalent um but there is even there is a very early um which we we'll point to in our introduction an early latin uh, tradition in germany which starts in the 1670s but it's uh and eventually turns into uh this turns into vernacular uh literature at the turn of uh, the century uh, we don't know exactly what triggered uh this uh, this latin uh, phase it begins with uh dissertation chaired by Johann Christoph Sturm at Altorf. Altorf was a small university just outside of Nuremberg and uh, on on the eye that sees God. In fact, not, not with physical theology in the title uh, yet, but I think that's a, a general difference between the continent and the English situation. Uh, the English start writing treatises which almost uh, uh, always uh, actually have physical theology in the title uh, whereas in germany and also in the dutch uh, l- literature uh, that doesn't there uh, is a difference in germany actually these pronto theology and Rana theology et cetera, they're a phen- phenomenon of the uh, of the eighteenth century only and but to, uh, uh, all the treatises treat written before, they're not, to, don't declare themselves to be explicitly to be physical theolo- uh, theology. And in uh, Holland, uh, Holland, the same thing, uh, the notion of physical theology doesn't exist, even though there's a whole number, uh, starting with Jan Slammerdam in the late 17th century, a whole number of physical theological uh, authors that just don't call it, call it that.
2: Physical theology gives us a great example of the diffusion of these books through translation. So the decline of Latin is happening at the same time, and they are operating mainly in the vernacular and they're translating works from one language to another, which is something I think we don't get into as much as I would have liked. It's it's a, a new project for the future to talk yes. about the role of translation in diffusing and, of course, transforming to some extent. You know, the choice of title, for example, and, and just emphases can be modified in a translation. And, of course, right. the whole point of translating is because printers are going to make money from selling these books. And so there is a sense of finding out what people want to read through what printers think they're going to want to buy, which is what they care about. And many of these books do go through multiple editions, which is a sign of success in selling. Uh, so it's it's a very rich field. And then the other f- area I think we could study more is marginal annotations in the surviving copies of books as people, readers, individual readers with pen in hand respond to the text Um and that we could, uh, there. there's lots of opportunity, thanks to digitization in particular, that many of these early printed books, you know, they're all out of copyright, obviously, and many of them have been digitized and are freely available from a lot of different, there's a giant German and other Swiss projects to uh, digitize uh, books in in bulk. And you can actually look at multiple copies of the same book, too, and watch, you know, maybe find the annotations of someone, maybe you won't know who but that are just survived because the book was digitized
0: and you can you can actually also compare tra- uh, t- translations and the original these days online uh, which sometimes uh, uh, gets uh, interesting results uh, when physical theologians are, are translators. They sort of uh, <laughs> sort of uh, try to um, to adapt uh, uh, what they're translating, Fenlon, uh, for example, uh, to their own uh, to their own needs. And uh, the the most curious example of our translations I know are a couple of treatises by Robert Boyle. They get translated into Latin in Geneva, and. Uh, Pirate, uh, uh, the pi- uh, pirated, or, of course, there's no because uh, Henry Oldenb- uh, Oldenburg on behalf of Boyle uh, actually complains about this in the, in the philosophical transactions. And uh, what happens is that the pietists in Germany, in Halle, actually use these Latin versions, uh, which the Genevans pirated, uh, to produce the German uh, version of Ro- Robert Boyle's treatises. So you have sometimes you have uh, complicated uh, processes, of, but I looked at uh, at that, and actually that the Latin translations, plus the German uh, versions are very much true uh, to the uh, to the original. Well, but that's always the case.
1: <laughs> Anne and Caspar and Blair and Caspar von Geyer. So it's been wonderful to talk to you today. A lively conversation, which really speaks to the the the, the fun. Uh, as well as the intellectual seriousness uh, of the book that we're discussing today physical theology religion and science in europe 1650 to 1750 just published by the john hopkins university press thank you both so much for your time today very much appreciate it could you tell thank us you. could you tell thank us you. what you're working on next
2: well, um, my project long underway is on the hidden helpers of intellectual work in early modern Europe. So when you write a book uh, as a physical theologian, who else is actually helping you out in the background, maybe taking notes for you, copying things, of course, everything is being done by hand. And there's a lot of making of clean copies, correcting proofs and all those things. So the category term I'm using is amanuensis. That is the, the hand helpers. Uh, You can see from the term, "aman" from the hand. Um, And it is a complicated project because these helpers are scattered all over Europe. Uh, Most recently, so that that one is going to take a little patience still, but I just have co-edited with uh, three other colleagues an interesting book called Information, a Historical Companion, which has a couple of, of units on secretaries and helpers, but many other features of how information is created, disseminated, and then used and consumed. So I think that's a, a promising um, new way of framing the history of knowledge. Great. Uh,
0: I have a couple of projects, but uh, I only want to mention uh, the one on locusts. Uh, because I ran uh, when I worked on a, a physical a, a theology uh, for a for a monograph, which is uh, currently uh, actually being uh, being looked at uh, by an English publisher, and hopefully they will take it. Um, When I did this research, I ran into uh, these treatises uh, dealing with locust invasions in 1693 uh, in Central Europe, and then again in uh, 1747, 1748. And in 1693, these locusts actually got as far as North Wales. That's right. And there was a conversation uh, there between people in North Wales and Edward Lewitt uh, at Oxford, because they didn't exactly know uh, what these creatures, because they were much bigger than uh, their local grasshoppers, they didn't exactly know what these kind of creatures uh, uh, were. So I want to go into that. I left that out of of the book I've just completed, and I want to go. I want to get back to that and look into it. It's also it's fun uh, in in many ways because these uh, armies of locusts, of millions probably of locusts descending, uh, on Transylvania and Germany at the, uh, at the time, uh, in 1693, they were very much described in, in terms of, uh, uh, of reporting on the Turkish on the Turkish wars, and uh, and that really uh, makes makes for amusing uh, amusing uh, reading at, uh, at points. Well, please, please. It, it's a much neglected phenomenon. Nobody really has known about that.
2: But it's also a, a very sad one. I'm sure lots of devastation was. Oh, absolutely was uh, wrought by them, and that's how. The uh, your Crawford, you pointed out the difficulty of physical theology is that it is an optimistic spin on things, and it sometimes gets to a tight spot when, when reality is quite grim. Um, it,
0: exactly, uh, physical theologians dealing with that uh, with that devastation actually only uh, laconically uh, could say, well, at least. The good Lord has made sure that we can, after they've eaten up our harvest, that we can eat them. <laughs> that's, of course, you know, a little consolation.
1: <laughs> yes, that's optimism in the end degree, isn't it? Well, Anne Blair and Casper von Kriertz, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. And thank you for editing this volume, uh, so beautifully produced by the Johns Hopkins University Press. Thank you for your time and take care. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.